Healthcare People, conversations about the health and care workforce. Hello, I'm Jamie Garnett from NHS Professionals and welcome to Healthcare People. This is the podcast where we talk about everything health and care workforce, the challenges, the opportunities and the future. In this series, we'll discuss the workforce pressure points for NHS trusts and integrated care systems and look at where positive change is possible. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dave Callow, Chief Information Officer at NHS Professionals. We'll be discussing issues around workforce technology, including ways to reduce staff effort and improve efficiency, the growth of personalised technology in healthcare, and the value of looking outside the NHS to develop tech-based solutions that improve outcomes for both staff and patients. Dave, hello and welcome to Healthcare People. It's excellent to see you here today in Harpenton in Hertfordshire, where we're recording. Hello and thank you for having me. It's, it's good to be here. It's nice to have a chat and have a moment to, to stop and think um, in our everyday life, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, things are so busy, aren't they? And it's good just to actually talk about some of the issues that, that you're facing and that you're working with clients and the NHS to actually solve. So take a step back from them and, and, and have a, a more general conversation about that, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's always good to, to take that moment because in the hurly-burly of the day job, you can easily miss the opportunities that are just le- leaning around the corner. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, it's good to take a moment. Thank you. Just very briefly, uh, you're Chief Information Officer. So could you just tell us briefly what your main responsibilities are? What What do you do all day? If that's yeah, not a, not fair a enough. insulting question. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so I'm responsible for the products team, for the IT team, for the data team and the insights team. So... In simple terms, the techie, geeky stuff that people who don't get out much and have no vitamin D in their system tend to look after. So um, it, it's the things that, that we all rely on every day, um, be it a system to log you on, know who you are, know where you should be, um, help you you know, write a letter all the way through to pay you properly, everything along that side, uh, along the technology, uh, and ultimately trying to deliver the business value that technology brings, um, not for its own sake. And it's not just about how the NHS professionals' internal technology ecosystem works, is it? It's about how effective we are with the NHS partners we work with. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And and if you think about it, what we're trying to achieve is getting the right person with the right skills at the right place at the right moment. So anything that gets in the way of that, anything that delays that, gives a a patient a a less um, successful outcome, you know, if it would be at the wrong skill or, 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 or absence of skill. So... Ultimately, the systems are there to facilitate that, to help that, and not to hinder it. And, and one of the challenges with technology is always managing to remember that the system is trying to support a business outcome. It is not a thing unto itself. Uh, and as a technologist, we can become very excited about the tech, you know, get really interested about the tech. But we must never lose sight of the fact that it's there to provide a service. So it's interesting. Uh, you've just talked a bit about the blockers and you've used that word before about the kind of blocks that uh, for example an NHS trust might face in delivering smooth and efficient and effective patient care so we'll come back to that idea of blockers and how technology may help or hinder those 
Um, just for now, though, I wondered if you could just give us a quick bit of context, um, because healthcare technology is obviously a, a huge area. Of course. And yeah. today mm. we're just going to focus on resourcing and, and workforce technology, the people-based technology, really, rather than the clinical side of things, which is, for example, page, electronic patient record, medical hardware, medical software. So we're not actually going to go there, but we're going to stick to technology that is designed for workforce issues so just to set the scene could you maybe give us an example of a couple of examples of workforce technology that are, are in use at the moment just try and try and make that real for us yeah of course and it starts i suppose with the really simple question of what do i need so the first tech you're going to come across in the in the people space um you know is going to be rostering technology you know who do i need what skills do i need when do i need it where do I need it? And, and those simple questions are helped greatly by um, rostering services and rostering systems that allow us to plan um, you know, in advance predefined patterns for what is actually quite a flexible environment. I mean, if you think about our, our um, colleagues in the clinical setting, you don't know how many patients are going to walk in through A&E necessarily at any point. You can look at the history to find out the future, but therefore the roster has to build in flexibility and it has to build in... Um, knowledge and understanding but ultimately it will help you get that right people um, at the right time but also at the right cost because it would be very easy to over resource um, but that would then starve resources elsewhere so that's the first technology you're going to see is demand management then the other technology you're going to come across very quickly is that technology that affects you as an individual you know HR systems who you are where you are what skills you've got um, those so that technology, you know, ultimately down to your payslip, you know, and, and that's the bit that you'll have a very intimate relationship with because it's the thing that you're, you know, you'll change your address. You'll go into the HR system. Um, you know, you're uh, going on a new training course. You want to see that in your skills part of your training record. You need your stat and man training. You know, all of those things are interacting with the HR system. So what we have to do is act like a jigsaw piece that sits into that big puzzle that locks together to ultimately give you as a human a, a user journey that joins together and, and that's one of those challenges that i'm sure we'll come on to later is making sure these things actually talk to each other so in terms of any uh, particular priorities in workforce technology in 2023 what what would they be what would perhaps the first two priorities that you can think of that you think right that's those are the big things this year so i think they start with the first priorities for the community which we serve so if you look at the move for NHS from, you know, a, a trust as an independent unit into an ICS as an integrated care system, we're going to start talking about um, a need to be very aware of um, employee mobility. So whether that be an employee passport, you know, for taking your records with you, um, or whether that be um, um, access to work, ultimately that's one of the key priorities. So when we start talking about that, we talk about collaborative banking, we talk about, you know, um, collaborative working. Um, the fact that you might drive past two trusts on the way to get to work. Well, could you work at those two trusts? You know, could you could you take your skill there? The fact that that trust A may well have to go out to a higher cost market, um, be that agency or, or or something similar, but but trust B has a, an excess of that skill. So the whole point of the ICS is is to allow people to work without barriers, and that's a key criteria for all of us and from a technology viewpoint the only way you can enable that is is entrusted technology that that you can carry your token your passport your your validity item from one trust to another and and be accepted as valid at both 
and that that's working with our colleagues in NHS England and and in the wider the DHSC family that's how that's going to work and the ICS is a key, key part of that I think is, is always a key driver of that should I say yeah because that's obviously one of the the aspects of integration is is the workforce integration and, and being able to actually make the best use of the available workforce across a bigger area rather than workforce that are somehow tied to institutions tied to one place yes absolutely and 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 the, and the other thing we've got to do is recognize that we're not walking into a greenfield site here so you know there are trusts that have their own systems um you could take the view of oh we'll just make everything the same we'll have a common data model we'll have a common um a systems map and all the rest of it and that would be absolutely ideal but how realistic is that because a trust has got a lot going on i mean it's got a lot of things to manage and therefore asking it to completely change its rostering system completely change its bank system completely change its agency cascade is not practical in 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 the short term so actually if we can help them interoperate help them talk to each other translate between each other where the same job is described differently in two different locations we're taking away that pain and making it so you get the outcome of of workers being able to work anywhere without having to go through a major technology program to enable that because we need it now we don't need it in six to 12 months time or longer so um our job is to is to live in the world as it is not as we might want it to be and and, and help it work with it with what's already there so quite pragmatic very yeah mm. <clears throat> Okay, and just in terms of the progress on implementing workforce technology in the NHS, uh, what's that generally, in your view, been like in the last few years? Where are we in 2023? What sort of progress has been made perhaps in the last five years? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've, we, we, we had the pandemic, right? And, 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 you know, I'm sure we all spotted that. It was quite busy at the time. So that's definitely <laughs> uh, um, slowed a few things down. It has actually coincidentally sped a few other things up, actually. Um, but... That means that, the, the, you know, the best laid plans are possibly behind where we would have ideally liked them to be, like the passport, for example. But the, the need for it is so clear because during the pandemic, we had to move staff around. And, and, and what we have found in the pandemic is cooperation across multiple institutions has got much, much clearer and much, much um, simpler um, because people are working to a common goal. So there's, there's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think in some cases the technology had to take second place to the, the here and now. And that's right, it should do. Um, uh, but what we do know is more. We now know more about the problem. We now know more about what the solutions are we need them to be. So as we now pick up the, the reins again and start to speed back up with our transformation programmes across various institutions, we have actually a much better chance at landing what is needed because of learning in what was a very stressful environment. Yeah, so in a strange way, although it was absolutely the wrong way to learn uh, no one would have wanted to learn this way uh, did it offer us a glimpse of of a new way of doing things it, it, it did lead us to a place of innovation I think so yeah and, and and look let's you know a big dark cloud had a very small silver lining on it yeah. let's, let's not celebrate the pandemic as a good thing no um, yeah. however there were good things that can be learned from it so yes I think it did and I think it also open the minds to what the art the possible could be whether that be telemedicine whether that be cooperation there's much more um hunger for change actually and, and hunger for new because we had to and i think because we had to we did and when we did it wasn't as scary as we thought it might be yeah we kind of proved something mm, to ourselves yeah. and, and 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 healthcare is not the only industry that, that's done this i you know i've i saw in an industry where i used to work before which is the insurance industry 
uh, um, a group of very conservative individuals who would who would not want to use technology in their day job, having to use technology, and then realizing they actually quite liked it. Fascinating that, and I think I think a very obvious example of that is suddenly lots of uh, meetings and conversations and interactions taking place online, and that wasn't really mainstream at all before the pandemic but and everyone I remember there was this kind of big thing saying well how do we do this and then suddenly we're now we don't even think about it uh, absolutely and, and and geography has become less of a factor because we can do remote meetings because we can do remote services if you think about how much time in an average day was lost by traveling from place to place you know or from going to a meeting be, be that even if that's time within your own institution you know walking from one room to another if you are able to um, have that quick, sharp conversation in which you can get to the conclusion you need to quickly with the right group of people without moving a foot. You're just saving time and effort. We have to balance that with the the need for human um, conversation and the water cooler moments. And actually, when I, when I listen to my um, fellow CIOs in other institutions, that's our balancing act now. You know, the hybrid meeting, um, where's the value in being in the office versus not being in the office? And and I think we're learning to be um, flexible, but actually we're learning to be driven by the people who consume the service. And, and that is a critical issue in healthcare, isn't it? Because obviously there is a world of difference, potentially, in theory, between having a, a virtual consultation with a doctor or a nurse or another healthcare professional and being in the same room with them and all those non-verbal dynamics, all sorts of things like that. I think it's a really difficult question to work out. What, in what circumstances is virtual consultations and treatment and diagnosis appropriate? And in what circumstances does that patient or that person rather need to be in the room with the clinician and the value of that? Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that, the, you know, the, the good thing about clinicians is they are incredibly um, flexible and capable individuals so actually I think what that gives you is the ability to actually have a, a very quick um, uh, reaction to, to meet a clinician to get an informed opinion which will probably lead on to a physical consultation where required but divert the ones that are not. So it's kind of like a form of triage? To a certain extent yeah it's, 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 it's like an enhanced triage it's, it's better than filling in a form trying to tell people what your symptoms are mm. but not as good as sitting in front of somebody showing them um, um, in some cases, but those who just need to go um, and you know personal life, you know my my I got put on antibiotics because I had a um, uh, an ear infection. Very simply, because I phoned them up, described it, and they went, "You need antibiotics," and it was done. So that actually was quite advantageous. I didn't necessarily need to sit in front of them. It was obvious what the problem was, and it was relatively minor. Anything more significant, then you're going to want in a face to face interaction. But you your face to face interaction will be more valuable if that makes sense because you've done the triage you've had that initial consultation so you're meeting the right person to have the right conversation so you've talked a little bit about uh, you've already hinted the idea of technology being an enabler and helping to remove blocks and we talked this idea of block mm -hmm. so i wanted to come on to that a bit more about this idea of effort because the nhs is obviously a very busy <laughs> very challenging environment and we really started to understand that in the last two three years we are very unfortunately seeing fairly high rates of burnout and exhaustion and fatigue um, in the workforce uh, staff have to work incredibly hard and they've worked extremely hard in the last two to three years and continue to do so as demand sure. continues to rise um, so managing the effort level of staff making sure they're doing um, 
only the jobs that they are they are appropriate for them to do and they're not having to do all sorts of other things that might waste their time and waste their energy that kind of thing within that climate is so key so i'm interested to know what role does workforce technology have in reducing effort in your view so so i think i look at it as as things that don't add to the patient outcome so if you look at administrative tasks find a shift book a shift timesheet a shift get paid for a shift they are necessities to um, enable people to to find and work and, and and be paid appropriately but the harder they are the more difficult they are the more they become a massive factor in the day job so actually if for example somebody was working um, uh, an eight-hour shift and and if you added up all the time they they did to search out that shift a flexi shift search out the shift find the shift and book the shift and let's say that 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 added to an hour and then by the time they finished the shift they had to do their timesheet and let's say they added another i don't know half an hour hour something like that if if we said there was two hours if you added all the little five minute tasks up together across the admin of that every four shifts is a shift it, you know those two hours worth of admin is the equivalent of actually working a full eight hour shift so actually if we can make those down to minutes or even non-existent um, where we make the systems come and tell you rather than you go hunt for it um, then that's that's going to add to one of two things it's either going to improve quality of life to reduce burnout because i'm spending less time doing admin for work sitting uh, even sitting at home on my mobile phone or it's going to increase patient face time because i'm going to spend more of that extra time in front of a patient and a lot of our clinicians spend an awful lot of time in front of patients because that's what they joined this industry to do so we're giving choice so everything i can do to take away admin is a good thing to do so that's on an individual level mm-hmm. so if we can scale that up to um, how a trust might see that and the benefits or the, or the challenges for a trust if you multiply all those pieces of wasted time and effort what kind of impact does that have on a trust and the, and the operational uh, efficiency of a trust and effectiveness I, I think it's huge i think it's because it's it is a bit of a game of inches but i think it's huge because if you can get one extra shift per month out of everybody who's who's working because you gave them um, their time back or if those people are um, uh, happy to work um, a different pattern because it suits their their life and therefore they're available more often ultimately you're going to remove the deficit and and if we look at um, um, you know the cost of going up to the higher cost things like agency workers versus bank workers again you're going to actually make the, the 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 budget go further so you if you've got more people available to do the to do work on the most cost effective way possible when you add all that up with the sheer volume i mean we do at nhsp we do 3.2 million shift hours on average per month just think about how many um hours of admin that are wrapped around that that we could try and reduce you know because it is just big volumes so the, the more you move the needle a little bit, the, cumulatively, it will make a huge difference to both finances, backlogs, patient outcomes. All of those things will improve because, quite simply, you've got more people available to you without having to go into training and, and international recruitment and, and domestic recruitment, which all have their place as well. You work with trusts a lot and, you know, we work with um, a whole range of clients across the country, trust clients and ICSs as well, increasingly. What are they telling you about the kind of technology blockers that they face? What What's the feedback you're getting? 
So I, I think I think it's, it comes down to availability availability of skills, availability of staff. That's the, that's the key thing is having um, a pool of staff who can fulfil their shift needs and making sure that those um, shifts don't go unfulfilled. Um, that's probably the biggest thing, and, and therefore what that drives into is uh, at the moment if you look at your average shift worker, as I say, they go hunt. Right, they have to log on and they'll see a lumber shift and they have to hunt through the shifts. They find the shift that they like, they book the shift, they work the shift. If we turn that on its head and if I look outside this industry into hospitality or if I look into retail and I think about this in a retail context, you don't go to Amazon and hunt, right? Not that often. It comes to you. It starts to look at the patterns of behaviours and things that you're interested in and says, hey, would you like this? Or is this of interest? If we can get some of that really pretty commoditized technology in play and we can actually help people... Um, by bringing things to their attention that are of interest, but making sure the choice stays with them as to whether to take that or not, or um, or whether even to, to allow that or not, then I think we'll have a happier and uh, and a more empowered workforce because we start to treat them more like customers and less like like employees, and we we value their time. The other thing I think we do we're looking at is treat the person as a human rather than treat them as a role. So actually, when somebody is working. They may be working in, in one role at that point in time, but they also have other hats that they wear. So they may be somebody who approves timesheets. They may be somebody who books resources as well as somebody who provides services. So if someone is kind enough to give us their time to log on to our systems, let's tell them everything they're interested in. So we maximize the, the use of that time without wasting their time having to log on to four or five different systems. You know, in, in an analogy, imagine if you walked into a, a, a department store but you had to go through a different door for every department, and every now and then we move the doors around just to make it exciting. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We, you, know, you, you don't walk into a department store and get held away from every department. You see what is there, and you can you can access it. Well, we should do the same. So if I'm hearing right, you're definitely hinting at this idea of personalised technology, which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute, actually. Mm -hmm. um, before we do, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think the opportunities are currently to remove... Uh, the barriers and blocks, uh, particularly around rostering and things like that. And, and you also refer to the mobility of the workforce. I'm thinking there are passporting. Could you say a bit more about that? And potentially, I wonder if AI is part of that as well? Yeah, I, I think, and, and it's a layer cake, right? It's a little piece of everything. Um, absolutely. I, I think that, that there is a, um, a great deal of opportunities here to help the ICSs fulfil their brief. Um, which is um, to collaborate and work as a collective unit. Um, and that, that really is going to come down in no small part to understanding the, the pool of resources they have access to and maximising the use of that pool of resources. So the technology, be it passporting, which is effectively recognising that the NHS has employed you, you've done your statutory training, you've done your mandatory training, you've done your background checking, you've done all that. Don't treat you as if we never met you because you walked up at a different trust. You know, so, so carry that information with the person rather than carrying it with the trust um, means that, the, you know, that, that, that's why they're using the term passport. You know, as you do with the passport, when you walk into any country, it's recognised as a respected document. Um, so that will make a huge difference for mobility and, and accessibility. Vision of rostering is really important. You know, understanding what shifts could be available in what locations, because, you know, it's the classic of uh, if I'd known that I'd have helped. So where are we with those, Dave, in terms of the, uh, are they achievable in the next two, three years? Can you just give us a quick summary of the progress on things like passporting and visibility of yeah. rosters? Yeah, I, I think it is very much achievable, actually. And, and, and when I look at some of the work that's going on in the wider systems at the moment, we've got really good illustrations of, of that in play right now. 
the biggest opportunity we've got is that that cumulative space that is an ICS where it will have one single set of standards, one memorandum of understanding, one way of, of accepting that trust A and trust B are doing the same level of vetting. I think we're at a crossroads where we can either take advantage of this opportunity or let it slip through our fingers and, and it would be a crying shame to let it slip through our fingers. Um, because ultimately, you know, if you look at um, the experience of a frontline worker, they're getting to do their statutory and mandatory training consistently many times over. Um, uh, they're, they're getting re-vetted and revalidated, which is not only disruptive to their life, but also is actually quite expensive. That alone will make a huge difference. Okay, so we let's come back to a bit more about this personalised idea because that has been a major feature of technology. I think if you, most people recognise the increasing personalisation of technology, you know, a piece of AI on your phone, kind of knowing what you had for lunch yesterday and how much <laughs> sleep you've had and what your heart rate is and all that kind of thing. And it's safe to say it's a, it's quite a controversial area. And uh, but it's very rich area that there are enormous challenges, enormous opportunities with it. Um, So we're seeing much more of it appearing in everyday life. So could you, for the sake of argument, describe what you mean by personalized and hyper personalized technology? So so, so hyper personalized or or, or as you say, personalized technology is about giving you what you um, want to see and need to see based on a combination of factors, past behavior. Um, things you're interested in that other people are interested in that link to, to other things. So, you know, people who are interested in, I don't know, you know, um, the Civil War from the 1600s might also be interested in history in general. You know, so that kind of of linking to give you an experience that is much more relatable to what you're interested in and what you want to um, achieve. So when we talk about that's personalization, hyper-personalization is really down to the individual. So taking the context of a workforce if for example you metronomically work every wednesday night then i should talk to you about shifts that are on wednesday night but i shouldn't talk to you about shifts that are on thursday morning because there is no point um um equally if you may tell me that i want to work on wednesday nights but actually your working patterns are tuesday nights and thursday nights um um, then actually i can learn that and come back and say well we're seeing this pattern has something changed would you be more interested in this kind of thing and, and I think it's a conversation. And I think where people get scared is when they think it's not a conversation, it's become, um, you know, I'm now, I'm now leading rather than following, right? And, and, and that's the bit that makes people fearful of AI. When I, AI is now telling me what I should do or think or be rather than listening to me and tuning to my needs. And, and that's the bit that we have to be um, conscious of as technologists but ultimately, it's about using the data in an appropriate and, and valuable way. But always comes back to the simple thing of choice. Give people choice. If you want to just see everything, then that's fine. We can, we can make that happen. If you want to see a curated list, we can make that happen. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's enable the human to be a human and not be a, a, an automaton. So the idea of that choice, um, if you save the sake of argument right, Personalised technology increases the sense of choice for, for example, individual workers, healthcare workers. What benefit could that bring to their patients? And what do you think, what benefits could that bring on a bigger scale to trusts and ICSs across a system if you increase the choice at that individual level? I I think it does two things. I think, firstly, if, for example, you were prepared to work 20 hours a week of flexible shifts, 
but you only ever see 10 hours a week's worth of shifts that you can do, we are losing something you're already prepared to do. And you are losing the income that relates to it. So it allows you to maximise what you're prepared to offer, you know, as in how many hours you're prepared to work, because we're offering you things that are of interest. It also means that you're taking um, shifts or work that, that are shifts of work that you really want to do rather than you need to do. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. So if, if there are people who are being offered shifts that are nearly what they want, but not actually what they want. Well, is that nourishing their soul? Is that helping them grow their career? Is that helping them improve their lot? So I think that that will um, ultimately um, allow us to curate and um, and support the decisions that they want to make and how they want to work and where they want to work. The patient, therefore, gets somebody who is um, um, you know doing what they want to do, is happier in what they want to do, is engaged in what they want to do, and also is working to the levels they want to work. So I think the patient outcomes will be significantly improved in that way. And the final component, the final piece of jigsaw positives for the trust is the more of that that we've got, the more automated that is, the less we either have to employ people to try and figure it out or we weren't run in a suboptimal mind. You know, we run with either less resources than we need or, or actually more expensive resources to get what we need. So I think it becomes a virtuous circle, but everybody's got to win a bit. And I don't think there's there's a case of if one group win because someone else is loses. This has got to be a win-win situation. And I think that's what we're trying to achieve here is using technology to make it easier to make the right decisions. Yeah, and I think if you if you start to make that process more efficient and more, I guess another word I would think of is friendly. Yeah. The idea of friendly tech, you know, you think, oh, it's, it's easy to work with. It's kind of pleasant. I, I feel kind of okay when I do it. You're quite right. If you focus on that at an individual level, you're increasing the healthcare professional sense of engagement with their work, positivity, and there's clear, very clear evidence that that leads to better, safer outcomes for patients, doesn't there? Absolutely. And you can see how the ripple effects of that go right up to organisational and then system level as well. Yeah, because it, because it, it, it's all built on its own foundations, isn't it? You've got to You've got to make sure that, that we're we're looking after everybody who's working in the frontline services because that will make all the other services significantly better. And as you say, it's cumulative. I think it would definitely builds to that top level of the whole system. Are there any particular challenges that we've got right now around personalised technology that the NHS has kind of got to overcome? I think I think the, the, the challenges are not unique to the NHS, but they are exacerbated by sheer size and scale. And and those are things like we don't describe the same thing the same everywhere. So... Uh, you know, uh, be it, you know, a, a Band-Aid nurse in one location will be described as Band-Aid, you know, general nursing or or, or, or whatever the, the, the code may be. Somewhere else it might be general nursing Band-Aid. Um, well, as far as the system is concerned, they're two different things. So what we've got to do, therefore, is, is build a, a translation engine, a Babelfish or whatever, because, as I said earlier, in an ideal world, you'd make them all common, but we're not starting from zero. So we need to be able to allow these this wobble, this ability to interoperate and recognise that what is in place A is the same as in place B, just described differently. That's probably one of our biggest challenges right now because that that's what leads to mobility. So I'm going to show my ignorance here. It's, yeah. it's, it, that makes me think of, you know, if you're doing search engine optimization and you'll type in different spellings of common words because people will misspell, not spell yeah. things in the same way. Is that the same sort of idea? Kind of, but it's not misspelling. It's just done differently. So, yeah, it, it's more actually like having it in French, German, English and Italian. It's variability, isn't it? Yeah. It's building variability into that. 
Yeah, exactly. And recognizing that the, 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 these items here are basically intrinsically the same to these items yeah. here. Mm-hmm. That in itself will also then lead you to actually say, well, well, we are now able to offer skills that are, are interoperable because the skills for job A are very similar to job B, even though job B looks um, and dis- is described very differently. What I'd quite like to do is to go on to other industries and just sort of look at what the NHS has already learned, but also what it, what it could learn from other industries. Because I think some people would argue that the NHS can be quite insular, mm-hmm. but there are many examples of the NHS looking outside its walls for inspiration. Uh, two examples in my mind are surgery. Mm-hmm. They've adopted uh, some safety practice from the airline industry, which I know you, Dave, will be very interested in. I am. Yeah. Uh, Dave trained to be a pilot when he was 15, a light aircraft pilot. So uh, that's a very nice piece of synergy there. <laughs> and the other one in my mind is the so-called lean model of management, which was originally developed by Toyota. Toyota's build method, yeah, yeah. The automotive industry. Yeah. So what, what, if anything, in your view, uh, you've mentioned a department store already in the conversation, but what, if anything, can the NHS learn from other industries when it comes to using workforce tech more effectively? So I think that there's some real synergies across two industries that immediately pop into your brain. Hospitality, right? Hospitality has flexible workers, whether that be a chef, a sous chef, or a, or a, a waiter or a waitress, or whatever role it is that, that you have a lot of a flexible worker um, a group of people who self-serve, self-book, um, turn up, do work, get paid, go home. Um, so there, there is a synergy of, of, again, back to our visibility. You know, if I want to work in one of those roles, where am I going to be working? When am I going to be working? And, and, and how am I going to book those shifts? So hospitality has to do this all the time. And, and we can learn um, from them and we can also provide knowledge back to them. It's a symbiotic uh, relationship. The other area I think is really, really fascinating to me is retail in general. And retail has a customer service ethic that is right down in their toe tips. So I, I did some work um, um, not so long ago with uh, John Lewis's, actually on the insurance side, but John Lewis's is a customer service organisation to its boots. I mean, it thinks about the customer at every level. I know Tesco's are the same um, to the point where they've even got pictures of customers in the boardroom because in a retail environment, your customer literally walks out the door. I mean, they, they go to the shop next door if they don't get what they want. And if we start bringing some of that ethos into recognising that in the flexible worker space, if you like, we are selling shifts. They are buying them with their time. I know the money goes the other way around, but somebody giving us their time is a, is a, is a retail experience that we should treat with customer service at its heart. And all of this is very interesting. You talked about, for example, John Lewis and Tesco. They, I love that phrase you used, which was, you know, they, they've got customers um, in their boots, was in it? In their toe tips, yeah, yeah, yeah. In their yeah. toe tips. Yeah. But, I, but of course, that's, the NHS has that with patients. But totally, I think sometimes yeah. it doesn't come out like that, does it? Everyone working in the health service would be, they're so utterly dedicated and committed to their patients. But the system needs to, and the technology particularly, needs to enable them to actually make that vision, make that commitment, that personal commitment, a reality, doesn't it? And if you've got lots of blocks in the way, then all those people there are going to be so frustrated and they're not going to be able to deliver the care that they want, are they? Exactly, yeah. And anything that gets between you know, a clinician and, and the patient is, is arguably in the way. So, so because people, I don't think, I mean, my daughter's training to be a paramedic at the moment. And she's not chosen to go and train to be a paramedic because she likes paperwork. Um, she's chosen to be a paramedic because she likes helping people and she likes, you know, um, um, assisting people in medical distress. So paperwork is essential, but it's not the reason we do the job. And therefore, anything we can do to make that simpler will give you more time to do the job 
that people actually want to do. Um, and I think, you know, back to that customer service thing, yes, we, we absolutely and rightly, patients are at the core of everything we do. We now need to give the, 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 the workers and the, and the members the same experience as well. We've got to remember they are humans, they are people, and they need looking after too. That's the bit where, where as a technologist, I, I spend my time is thinking about my customers, the consumers of my system, in that, in that terms. It's fascinating. And I think you talked about this idea of people and the humans here. And I'd like to just finish on that, actually, because we are running out of time. And uh, I was at a conference recently, a healthcare conference, and the subject of AI came up. Mm -hmm. And perhaps inevitably, uh, there was some anxiety expressed that AI would replace what someone described as the human touch in healthcare. Um, just briefly, what, what are your thoughts on that idea of the human touch? And particularly, how confident are you that humans and technology can work together in harmony so that both in a healthcare environment, staff and patients ultimately benefit? So, so the first thing I think with AI, and, and actually interestingly, when I worked on biometric systems, a similar problem there, is we are more scared of them than they're capable, capable of. So computers are dumb. I mean, I just I, I say this as a technologist, they're not the sharpest tool in the box because you can get them to format their own hard drive and kiss goodbye to themselves. So they aren't clever in innate terms, not yet anyway. They're clever in how they can view data and help us see patterns within it. They're clever in how they can bring things to the top of a pile. Um, and yes, there is some innate intelligence we're now building in with things like ChatGPT and, and stuff like that that is able to interact within a rule set or within a learned rule set. Um, I, I once spent some time up at um, Cambridge University with one of the professors of um, visual analytics up there and he told a story about breast cancer diagnosis and when you train bots what you do is you put in known start points and known end points and the bots find a pattern so they were putting in scans for breast cancer at the front and at the back that were known to be cancerous and getting the, 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 the bots to find the cancer as it were to find the patterns and they were brilliant I mean they were amazingly good diagnostically until they realised when they started to move out of the original data set that what they were doing was reading the name of the hospital at the top right-hand corner of the scan because that was the one thing that was in common with all the cancer sets. They ignored the picture completely and actually just looked at the name of the hospital because that, as far as it was concerned, was a pattern. So they are genuinely stupid. You know, we have to, we have to <laughs> teach them not to be dumb, mm. right? So first of all, don't be scared. Secondly, the human factor, I think, is, is, is the very essence of what we do this for. The AI and all of the component parts may help guide us, but ultimately we're making the final call. Um, and therefore, what we're doing is lifting to the top the right information um, and, the, uh, and the right ideas for us to be able to review and decide or, dis or dispose of. And I think that's not going to change because I think we are way cleverer than the tech will ever be, um, or at least in my lifetime. Ultimately, I think we are the, the deciding factor. And I think humans work with humans, and particularly in the medical setting, it is all about that that personal interaction. If that's down a team's call versus being physically in a room, there's pros and cons, but ultimately it's still human-to-human -human interaction. And I think, therefore, we shouldn't be scared of the AI because we are in charge of what we're trying to do with it. We aren't a victim of it. Dave, it was really fascinating talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from NHS Professionals. Find out more about our work supporting the health and care economy at nhsprofessionals.nhs.uk or by searching at NHS Professionals on social media.